Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood, the quasi-regulation two guests today. The environmental journalist Tina Gerhardt will discuss the special threat posed by rising seas to small island nations. And Quinn Slobodian will tell us about libertarian schemes to opt out of boring things like taxes and regulations by creating special zones where democracy is circumscribed and accumulation given free reign. As the oceans rise, coastal areas are already feeling the effects, but no places are more threatened than the small islands scattered about the oceans. That's the topic of a new book by the environmental journalist Christina Gerhardt, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, just out from the University of California Press. It is, as the name suggests, a collection of maps, but also of poetry and prose from indigenous writers and activists. It's also a very beautiful book that's a delight to look at, even though the subject matter gets pretty grim. Besides this book, Tina's writing has been published by Grist, The Progressive, The Nation, Sierra Magazine, and The Washington Monthly. Tina Gerhardt. Tina, it's a grim subject matter you're dealing with, but it's a very, very beautiful book. How'd that come to be, such a beautiful artifact? Oh, thank you so much, Doug. The University of California Press uh, is the publisher of Sea Change and Atlas of Islands and a Rising Ocean. Leah Chandra is their in-house designer, and they dedicated her and her time to this project. And she said she had such a great time working on it. I really owe the beauty of the book to her and to Molly Roy, who produced the maps, and to Zina Doretsky, who produced scientific illustrations for the book. Trevor Pegman let me reprint a couple of his works of art. Yeah, it's funny, you know, people think there's a single author's name in the cover, but even something as um, apparently solitary uh, as uh, authorship has got a collectivity behind it. Yeah, this is this is definitely a collective project, um, and I wanted it to be that way for a number of reasons. I think we have enough scientific studies t- to argue the points about the impacts of sea level rise. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think the scientific studies are really important. I call this book a symphony, a symphony that brings together art, maps, poetry, my essays, as well as other short texts by Islanders. And then, of course, the the scientific studies are cited throughout. But I, I wanted a symphony because I wanted to engage disciplines that are in the humanities or this growing field called environmental humanities. And this is the difference between scientific reports and what my book tries to do, to really have people understand what is at stake of being lost, um, which means the histories, the cultures, the languages of islanders. And in order to get at that, we need the fields from the humanities. You know, we need things like history. We need things like the disciplines of art or of literature. Those are some of the things that I wove together with the science. There's a lot of poetry and uh, literary prose in the book. It's uh, not just uh, geography and uh, geological sciences and all. It's a blend in a number of ways. It merges all these disciplines together, weaves them together. And then beyond being inter-transdisciplinary, it's also somewhat of an anthology. So it's a single-authored book, but it isn't, as you were already mentioning. It's a collaboration with a cartographer. It really has a heavy hand, and I mean that in a good way, um, of a designer to to give it its beautiful shape. I did want to smuggle environmental politics into a coffee table book, and I think they got the gist of my project. And it's precisely to deal with what is an otherwise bleak topic, but it's also somewhat of an anthology. So I did archival research in libraries that have strong holdings of a Pacific Island poetry or Caribbean Islander poetry. Those are the two main regions. There's um, 49 islands from around the world in sea change. In addition to those two regions off the west and east coast of what is called Turtle Island or North America, and then off the west and east coast of Africa, as well as in the Indian Ocean. But I wanted to weave in the voices of islanders. And a lot of their poetry, as I was reading it, really gives you a vivid sense of day-to-day life. There's talk about the breadfruit trees or, you know, the mango trees are the kinds of fish that are fished and just that quality of life on the islands. And I wanted the poems in for that reason. There's a lot of poetry that also talks about the impacts of colonialism in terms of the, the history up to the present day, and then the impact to sea level rise. 
uh, struck me as I was reading the book that I'm speaking to you from the largest and most populous island in the U.S. Uh, it's not certainly not typical of the uh, the islands you're writing about, but we do have some of the same problems here on the Long Island, Red Hook, Brooklyn, or in, in Montauk. It's it's all happening, and there's no there's no escaping this thing. No, that's absolutely right. So one of the things you know that I talk about in Sea Change is the fact the sea level rise that impacts islanders as a harbinger of the fate that awaits coastal communities. One of the largest audiences for this book is undoubtedly going to be continental land dwellers. There's a lot of conceptualizing that went into the book that deals with decontinentalizing the gaze, as I call it, which which is another way of saying that a lot of people on continents really just think about things from a continent-based perspective. And I wanted people to put themselves in the middle of the Caribbean or in the middle of the Pacific and think about land from that vantage point. Using islands as an example of the fate that awaits others elsewhere is always problematic as, you know, using people not focusing on their situation for its own sake, but as an example for the fate that awaits others elsewhere is problematic. But I think it's important to make this argument because half of the U.S.'s population, about 40%, lives on coastal states and cities. So it's it's estimated that about 13 million U.S. residents are going to be impacted in order of impact from Florida, Louisiana, California, New York, and New Jersey. So there's a heavier impact on the East Coast and on the Gulf than on the West. Coast. I'd also talk a bit in the introduction about internationally the cities that are going to be affected. So that's Guangzhou and Shanghai and China, Hong Kong, a lot of very populous cities, Mumbai and India, Amsterdam and the Netherlands, Lagos, Nigeria, Dakar, Senegal, and Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Now let's go back to that uh, issue of the continental gaze. I mean, I think the classic view of the world from the metropolitan regions, at least, is uh, the oceans are empty in some sense, certainly not of fish, but no, we don't normally think of all the islands and the people. The giant land masses, the giant continental land masses are what organize our sense of global space, right? Right. There's two threads that I I talk about in the introduction that really led to this book. On the one hand, and people think it comes out of, I, I have a teaching position at the University of Hawaii where I'm associate professor. So people think it comes out of that, but it predates it. I've been covering the UN climate negotiations since 2009 in Copenhagen. They take place typically towards the end of the year, November. For two weeks, you hear individual nations from 198 nations that are part of these negotiations stand up. And before they weigh in on something, they'll say, well, I want to acknowledge the situation in my home country. And then they'll elaborate. So last year, it was Pakistan. A third of the country was underwater, billions of dollars damage. 3,000 people died, half of whom were children. And then it was also the drought ongoing still in the Horn of Africa. And so what happens when you cover the negotiations is you are viscerally aware of what is going on with regard to the climate crisis around the world. And then you look at, I'll just name The Guardian again as a, as a great example of venue that's been covering the climate crisis um, impressively with a robust team since about 2009, at least, if not longer. You look at their their coverage, and even though I think their section and their individual journalists do a great job, uh, there's often a focus on the U.S.-China standoff for good reason. That's a really important part of the U.N. negotiations in terms of what holds things up. What I was concerned about and therefore decided to do this book in, in response to this is that I wasn't seeing coverage of all of these regions around the world that are affected. Now, obviously, I wasn't going to be able to cover all regions and all climate crisis impacts. So I decided to focus on islands and on sea level rise. And then to return to Hawaii, what I noticed in teaching in Hawaii over the last decade is that when I went back and I started working on this book and I started thinking about the island and the imaginary, I thought, oh, good, good heavens. We have Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe from the 18th century. You know, listeners might have read Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when they were kids from the 19th century. And then more recently, Golding's Lord of the Flies from the middle of the 20th century. But the problems with all of these stories is that they have cishet white men going to islands with some sort of a plan. They're an explorer, they're a navigator, they want to conquer the island, they want to set up a harem, things go awry, they want to set up a religious cult, things go awry, et cetera, et cetera. Cannibalism is something they talk about encountering. And I thought, good heavens, like what I'm missing here is the vantage point of islands from islanders. And what would a story about islands that comes from 
islanders' writings of their history, of of their landscape through poetry, what would that actually sound and look like? That's the two threads that I'm weaving together here. A lot of people think of islands from the continent maybe as a getaway. A tourism industry is huge in islands. That might be one vantage point. Military is the other big industry on islands. Yeah, you mentioned the heavy presence of U.S. military on islands. You also point to the fact that the uh, the military has a consciousness about uh, what's happening with rising sea levels and other climate change issues that is perhaps lacking elsewhere at the high levels of uh, Western society. Tourism and, and the military are often the two major economic um, motors of island economies. And the military in, I want to say it was uh, 2012, they commissioned a study asking for the impacts of sea level rise on their infrastructure to be documented. Now, this was the era still of climate denialism, which I want to say, believe that we are out of, we're probably in the era of climate dithering is what I would call it. And I took note of this study because it indicated to me that even if there's an industry around denialism, the military, among other entities, is very well aware of the impacts of the climate crisis and the fact that it's going to affect their infrastructure. I'm not sure that everyone is aware of how intensely islands are militarized. When I moved to Hawaii, one of the first things I realized is that there's a great affinity that people in Hawaii feel for islanders on Guam, for islanders in Okinawa, for islanders uh, in the Philippines, islanders in Cuba and Puerto Rico. And I thought, well, that's stretching a lot of geographies. We're not just in the Pacific. And it's a lot of geographies. And what those geographies have in common on the one hand is that they were all involved in the U.S.-Spanish War and therefore ended up in some relationship to the U.S. They were occupied by the U.S. as the kind of relationship they ended up in, or they have present-day military bases on them. One can add Okinawa there. One can also add the Marshall Islands, um, among many other locations. There's more military bases in more island nations around the world. There's an estimated, the U.S. has an estimated 5,000 military bases of those, uh, the U.S. has has hundreds of islands. So I, I decide to focus on those territories. I think there's 54 specifically on islands. I'm speaking with Tina Gerhardt, author of Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean, just out from the University of California Press. Okay, let's talk some about the specifics of uh, the sea level rise. There's a double effect of uh, warming, uh, first on the water, which expands more, and the ice melts. So could you talk about those uh, in turn? Yeah, I open the book with Greenland, which I do for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is, as you mentioned, the melting at the poles, the Arctic, the Antarctic is the source of sea level rise. And so I talk about the melt in Greenland, which is the largest island in the the smallest body of water. I also open with Greenland, uh, which is 85% indigenous, and talk about, I include this poem by Inuit Piak poet Akaniviana, co-authored with Marshall Islander and climate envoy Kathy Jetnil-Kishner, and the poem's titled Rise. And the two uh, take turns speaking, and Akaniviana will talk about the impacts of the melt on her peoples in Greenland. And Kathy Jetnil Kishner talks about the impacts of sea level rise on her home islands uh, of the Marshall Islands. And the interweaving of their voices really indicates the relationship between melt at the poles and the effects that it has around the equator in the middle of the Pacific. So the Marshall Islands is one of the island nations most at risk globally. Um, The foremost at risk globally are the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, and Tuvalu. All of those are in the Pacific Ocean, and then the Maldives and the Indian Ocean. For the science, we went with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their science. It's the UN scientific body made up of hundreds of scientists, and they put out a report about every five years. The most recent one was issued last year, and it's called the Sixth Assessment Report. And according to the sixth assessment report, we're looking at a foot of sea level rise by 2050 and three feet by the end of the century, by 2100. The Marshall Islands rests about six and a half feet above sea level rise. So if we're looking at three feet by the end of the century, that's pretty intense. And when your listeners hear, oh, well, it's only going to be three feet, they're like, oh, you know, it's not going to be underwater. What's the big deal? And there's a number of issues. The, the IPCC's reports are notoriously conservative, by which I mean that 
every other month in those interstitial years between another IPCC coming out, one can read scientific reports that indicate that, oh, the sea level rise is much worse than we thought. It's actually going to be more intense. So that's one issue. The other issue is sea level rise is not a line on a map. It's really more of a gray zone of inundation. If your house is on an atoll that is six and a half feet above sea level rise and you have three feet of water coming in, you may not be underwater, but you're dealing with mold, you're dealing with mildew, you're dealing with the water having come in and having retreated and your home basically being uninhabitable and at risk. That's in terms of habitats. The issues of sea level rise beyond that for low-lying island nations are really intense because when the saltwater intrudes, it impacts agriculture on the one hand and and freshwater on the other hand. A lot of the islands that are in my book consist of uh, subsistence farmers. They rely on what they farm themselves, what they grow themselves, or what they fish. Now, when you have sea level rise coming in, it upsets the salinity of the soil. It makes it more salinized. So with that greater increase of salt content in the soil, the plants can't take up the water anymore. Adding to that or compounding that is that a lot of islands, especially the atolls, which are often like a couple yards wide and just a few miles long, They don't have rivers running through them, so they rely on rainwater, basically. They have these elaborate systems of rainwater catchment, so they catch all this rainwater, and that's how they get the freshwater, or they rely on freshwater aquifers, and the saltwater will get into those aquifers, and and it'll end up upsetting the balance there. So you're dealing with really a loss of potable freshwater. And that's impacting humans, that's impacting all the animals that live on these islands, and it's also impacting this subsistence farming. Natural barriers uh, play an important role in keeping the water at bay, so to speak. I think people probably know about coral, a coral reef, but oysters as well, which are probably less appreciated. Uh, Yeah, Could you talk about what's happening with those barriers and what the effects are? I'm glad you're asking about the different kinds of solutions to the crisis. I do talk about, you know, the kinds of solutions that are being put forward often by islanders or community residents themselves. So there's two big categories, soft engineering, often referred to currently as uh, nature-based solutions, is one large category. Hard engineering is the other category. So soft engineering includes uh, coral reefs and oyster reefs. Coral reefs are basically to the tropical zone what oyster reefs are to the temperate zone. They provide these natural barriers. They're also really important in that they provide vibrant marine habitats. So some of these scientific illustrations that are in the book show some of these vibrant marine habitats. Um, So they're ecosystems. And I think, again, that's where this theme of, you know, we are all connected comes up. The other thing that makes oyster reefs so important is that they also filter water. If we're standing on the shore, we look out to the ocean, we think of sea level rise coming at us. Coral reefs, oyster reefs provide a buffer. So waves erode the coastline, regardless of sea level rise or not. And these create a buffer. When you have sea level rise, it compounds that wave action or that erosion. And then it can prevent, if you have storm surge, say there's a hurricane coming in, these oysters can act, oyster reefs can actually create somewhat of a buffer zone. If you turn 180 and you look back towards the land, any water that's coming off of the land runoff, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of a really high level of uh, snow melt here in the Bay Area where I'm speaking to you from right now. And all of that water, when it runs off, picks up everything along the way. So that's all of the pesticides that have been applied to land. That's all of the cars and everything that they leave on the roads. And that ends up running into the Bay. And oysters do really important filtering work. I don't want to make it sound like they can clean up all of this, but they do important work. The other entities that do important work are along coastlines that should be mentioned are mangroves. So these are these, I always call them like trees that walk on stilts. They have these root systems that are high out of the the water line. And they're one of the few kinds of trees that can actually handle or withstand high salt salinity that I was talking about earlier. And they too, like the coral and oyster reefs, provide a very important marine habitat. So the fish, when they're very tiny, swim in and amongst these tangles of roots, and the big predator fish can't get at them. Um, so I've read an article recently about a guy in India who is you know, working single-handedly when he gets off work to restore mangroves in the coastal community that he lives in. 
Wetlands in temperate zones are really important. They provide a buffer against sea level rise too. The problem with all of these entities that I've named is that we've typically removed them. So in urban environments, we've removed them to install harbors or any of the infrastructure we love to have along a waterfront, water treatment facilities, power plants, nuclear ones especially, they require water for cooling. Airports are often located near water. Typically, they're built on infill, which is also really intensely at risk because of sea level rise. And then hard engineering, the other category. That is seawalls. That's also raising islands. So seawalls probably don't need an introduction to your listeners if they're in the New York City area because they're in the process of installing the big U around the southern tip of Manhattan. The problem with seawalls, Jeff uh, Jeff Goodell has written about this in The Water Will Come and Elizabeth Rush and Rising. The problem with seawalls is by the time they're built, they're usually not keeping up with the pace of sea level rise and they're exorbitantly expensive. So for the island nations that I focus on in sea change, they're really not something that can be considered because of the typical GDPs of a lot of the nations. There's a couple of wealthy nations in sea change, but the majority have GDPs that are just minuscule. You mentioned uh, Singapore, which is, unlike most of these islands you write about, a pretty rich place, but uh, they're able to afford uh, basically infilling, right? They're expanding. Yeah. Yeah. They're not shrinking. No, they're not shrinking. And I'm I'm glad you noted that real anomaly there. So Singapore... Uh, is using infill. Uh, the Kingdom of Bahrain, which is also in, in Sea Change in my book, is also using infills. And I've done some really interesting work to look at maps of cities and the impacts of infill. And lo and behold, the areas where, where the city had expanded its, its footprint um, or the island had expanded its footprint by using infill, that was the area that was most going to be at risk of sea level rise. And I think there's a really interesting lesson there. You know, basically, water likes to reclaim where it has previously been. Now, a lot of the uh, islands you write about are pretty small, the ones in the Pacific. But they're in the Caribbean, there are several large ones, Cuba, uh, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico. Uh, what's happening with them? They're not going to disappear in quite the same way as, say, Tuvalu is likely to, but uh, what's happening to them? Thanks for noticing that distinction. So there's two different kinds of islands in sea change. There's low-lying islands or atolls, and then there's what are called high islands or volcanic islands. And as the name suggests, the volcanic islands are volcanoes. They're peaked, they're domed, they might still have active uh, volcanoes on them. The low-lying islands or atolls, the ones that I described previously, the Marshall Islands, just a few meters wide, a couple miles long, and just six and a half feet, you know, for the Marshall Islands above sea level rise. Those are the most at-risk ones. And what they are is basically the rim of where the volcano was until it started to sink underwater. So they're often ring-shaped. Now, what you're asking about in terms of some of the volcanic islands that are located in the Caribbean, they will not be underwater. You're absolutely right there. The reason why I think it's important to bring attention to them is that on islands, especially volcanic islands, high islands, often you'll have the majority of the population clustered around the coastline. There's a couple of reasons for that. If you have a really peaked island, that incline might be a little bit more treacherous to live on. If you have an active volcano, people might want to be away from that. Coastlines are obviously places where people, if they're subsistence farmer and fisher, as I was mentioning, can get some of their daily meals by going out and fishing. So, you know, there's all the the movement along a coastline of fishing and boat traffic that makes it a place where people want to be. So that high population density along the coastline actually ends up putting people in harm's way. And that's the case on Cuba. That's the case in the Seychelles. That's the case in a number of of islands that I have in, in sea change. Is socialist Cuba dealing with this in any distinctive sort of way? The interesting difference between Cuba and some of the other islands that I have in sea change is that you know, I talk a lot about colonialism in the island, modern day imperialism, and one of the ways that it manifests, aside from the military, um, which we've talked about, is the way in which islands are strongly tethered, if they're tethered to a dominating continental entity. So Hawaii, uh, Guam, the Marshall Islands come to mind. There's entities that stand in relationship to the U.S. or occupied are occupied by the U.S., is a high reliance on fossil fuels. That's actually true for Puerto Rico as well. So 
Where Cuba is in a very different situation, being an independent island, is that it's put forward a plan that is, first off, it's it's put forward a plan that's banning building homes along the coastline. And it's stipulated managed retreat, so people moving inland. But it's also, it has a high population density along the coastline. But one of the things uh, that they're also trying to do is really shift its its energy usage, so what it's derived from. That's a real opportunity for change on islands is, you know, if they were to be energy independent and to leapfrog, you know, there were all the stories about different countries in Africa leapfrogging straight into cell phones, not having landlines and leapfrogging straight into cell phones. And I think a lot of people are tracking right now if there's a a leap into renewables. And I think island nations would be terrific regions to have this leapfrog into renewable energy. That was Christina Gerhardt, author of Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean just out from the University of California Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the third movement of Debussy's La Mer, the dialogue of the wind and sea, performed with the London Symphony under André Previn. And now libertarian enclaves. In his new book, Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals in the Dream of a World Without Democracy, just after Metropolitan Books, Quinn Slobodian, one of the leading scholars of neoliberalism, turns his attention to the special parts of the world where democracy is circumscribed, if it exists at all, and markets and money rule instead. Yes, markets and money rule here too, but there are still some limits but not in places like Hong Kong or tax havens or special economic zones. And libertarians like Peter Thiel and Patrick Friedman want more of them. With more, here's Quinn Slobodian, whose day job is as a professor of history at Wellesley. Some years ago, I remember reading an article on the transition of socialism in New Left Review, and the author used the metaphor of building guerrilla encampments around capital as an element of a transitional strategy. Uh, it seems like your people are building um, guerrilla encampments within capitalism to intensify it. Absolutely. And that's quite openly the way it was discussed. I have this quote in the book from the historian Paul Johnson, who described these enterprise zones as daggers aimed at the heart of socialism. So there was no lack of melodrama in this idea that they were creating these zones of liberated territory from the heavy hand of post-war bureaucracy and social democracy. They have a very unusual concept of freedom. It's not what most people think of when when they think of freedom. Um, It's a freedom for the few and very explicitly so. This was one of the things that actually pulled me into this book was writing about the history of this thing called the Index of Economic Freedom, which I had known was a really successful gadget dreamed up by think tanks like the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute and the Heritage Foundation to rank the world's countries and territories according to their level of economic freedom. And I knew that Hong Kong was always number one and Singapore was always number two. But I was curious about how that came to be, you know, and what was left out when you create these narrower versions of freedom. So that's one of the stories I tell in the book is the way that they really just cooked the stats in all kinds of different ways to get this uh, outcome where things like rule of law understood as investor security, security of contract, locked in low tax rate balanced budget amendments. These things became the core definitions of what ultimately then was scaled up to an index of human freedom. So this was a very much a self-conscious attempt to confront a Cold War idea of liberal democracy, which foregrounded the idea of contested multi-party elections, and to present, by contrast, an alternative idea of freedom, which is actually democracy and elections are not only irrelevant to this version of freedom, but they're often also obstacles or the fly in the ointment of um, the machinery of capitalism. 
you quote Stephen Moore, who is certainly one of the, the lower quality pundits in that, that circuit, uh, as saying that capitalism is more important to democracy and democracy really is quite secondary to him. Absolutely. And he's actually an interesting character who I wish I had had more chance to get into in the book because he's been a big booster of the creation of these indexes of competitiveness and economic freedom inside countries as well. So you might remember his role during the pandemic. I remember his most memorable line was that we needed to roll back lockdown measures. Otherwise, we were going to see businesses in body bags. He was talking about how the speed at which states would be open for business, quote unquote, would produce an internal competition and um, redistribute resources inside the United States, setting territories against each other in zero-sum relationships of a fight for mobile investment is something that is often combined with an antagonism towards democracy because they see democracy as something that tends to lead towards redistribution, institutional sclerosis, and all kinds of things that slow down the, the speed of accumulation. Well, this reminds me uh, some of Hayek's idea of competitive currencies, that uh, a free market, competitive market in currencies would uh, create a bias towards minimal taxation, minimal government. Mm -hmm. This is all of a piece, right? It is of a piece. And I think that it's one of the reasons why the book spends its last couple chapters based in Silicon Valley and specifically kind of rotating around the world of people who are enamored with the idea of the sovereign individual and the miraculous rise of cryptocurrency as the concrete example of how, in their version, another world is possible. The argument that someone like Balaji Srinivasi and the infamous venture capitalist makes is that, in his words, we LARPed a currency into existence, so why can't we LARP a country into existence? The credibility that was granted the tech world in the early 2000s, and then the enormous amount of money that they were able to reap in the low interest rate era has led to some of the more hallucinatory visions of what new frontiers of state making might exist. So in their mind, they've created a currency. People who look at it more closely see that Bitcoin is more like a beanie baby than a unit of account. But the idea that you can move from there to creating competition between jurisdictions in the form of new states is actually a pretty small leap. And it's something that would warm Hayek's heart, I think, for sure. In the intro, you mentioned uh, the idea of soft secession. Charter schools, gated communities, to another example, are a way of opting out of the system without utterly transforming it. It might transform it over the longer term, but it's a way for individuals to have their declaration of independence from the heavy hand of the nanny, nanny state, right? So it's possible without massive institutional overhaul to um, at least realize part of their vision. Right, exactly. I actually found a couple of those terms quite helpful descriptively that were coined by libertarians or anarcho-capitalists to describe what they saw themselves as being up to. One of them is that idea of soft secession, which was coined by the former head of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Exactly. He talked about, you know, you you take your kids out of public schools, you stop paying taxes or you hide money where you can and, and do tax evasion. You arm yourself and don't rely on public security anymore. You withdraw to areas in which you can have a more uh, self-sustained off-grid type existence with many contingency plans created for the eventual coming crack up. The other term that someone coined is, was that of underthrow. So rather than overthrowing a state by seizing the heights of power, the reins of power, you perforate over time the possibility of a provisioning or fiscally reproductive state by starving it from below. So that idea translates especially well in the American context. It's a relatively large territory. You have already quite a bit of autonomy at the state level, and that is obviously accelerating at present and seeping down to even more efforts at municipal level. Secession from cities, the creation of new compacts that opt out of some of the usual measures of the mid-century redistributive state. The phenomenon of gated communities in the 1990s, which many people might remember as cast as a, a sign of social dissolution and the, the loss of togetherness, you know, a symptom of the Robert Putnam bowling alone phenomenon, was celebrated by many libertarians as a kind of a laboratory in which you could study the possibility of private government, states within states, that operated from a different principle than that of suffrage or one person, one vote. Rather, everything was governed by contract, sort of opt-in agreements, terms and conditions. All of these things, which <laughs> look a lot like bureaucracy, were actually celebrated as signs of market-based governance rather than governance based on some chimerical notion of popular sovereignty or the demos. 
Early in the book, you cite Patry Friedman, or Patry, grandson of Milton. Uh, I was struck by an essay he did some years ago for a Cato publication, in which he explicitly came out against democracy, because he came around to understanding that libertarianism just isn't that popular. It will never be voted into power. Uh, but his grandfather was an early adopter of this point of view, right? He fell in love with Hong Kong in the late 70s. Absolutely. So one of the fun things in the book is this sort of multi-generational story from Milton Friedman, who everyone's heard of, probably the most famous economist of the 20th century, to his son, much less well-known, David Friedman, but who is nonetheless extremely well-known in the world of radical libertarianism as one of the premier thinkers of anarcho-capitalism. So as opposed to his father, Milton Friedman, who believed in retooling the state in ways to sort of constrain what he saw as the excesses of socialistically inclined majorities. David Friedman, his son, and then his grandson, Patry Friedman, believed in the possibility of doing away with government altogether. So it can seem like kind of a leap. But as I explain in the book, you can see Hong Kong as a kind of a transitional object for all three of them. The opening scene in the book is 1978 with Milton Friedman in front of the sparkling skyline of Hong Kong, which had been catapulted from really being just an, an entrepot outpost some 30 years before to, with the arrival of a lot of fleeing money from Shanghai after the Chinese Communist Revolution, a site of basically light industry, manufacturing, shipping, plugging into the globalizing world economy, and then by the late 1970s, becoming a kind of a financial hub too. In an era of you know the new international economic order, decolonization, wars in the, in the, in the end of empire, Friedman comes across Hong Kong as a place that had somehow insulated itself from all of the intellectual and political errors of democracy and national self-determination. And how did it do that? Well, it remained a crown colony and it never allowed democracy in the first place. So this becomes the central puzzle of the book, which is how do you make something that looks like such an anachronism, a leftover piece of the confetti of the British Empire, into something that can be repackaged as a vessel for the future? And Patry Friedman, most well known for his idea of seasteading or producing offshore new polities, either on abandoned oil rigs or systems of floating barges or whatever, is the natural outcome of this notion of multiplying Hong Kong as a political economic switching point in the global economic space. Maggie Thatcher, gazing upon the beauties of Hong Kong, brought the model home with the Docklands. How does that extend this model that you've been talking about? Yeah. So in this late 1970s moment, there's a couple of extremely obvious sort of point A to point B sites of transfer. One of them is from Hong Kong to what is now Canary Wharf, that was then the down and out docklands after containerization and certain kinds of shipping had dried up into the center of London. And it was a deindustrialized uh, working class neighborhood around which there was a lot of concern, both for this kind of politics, you know, the lack of economic profitability and so on. And Jeffrey Howe, the chancellor of the exchequer for Margaret Thatcher and her first government, had an idea that was inspired in part, interestingly enough, by this anarchist geographer named Peter Hall, that they should simply sort of ring fence off parts of inner city, deindustrialized British cities and render them extraterritorial, say that they are now no longer part of Britain. So Hall wanted to take this very far. He wanted to actually say these areas would now also not be part of the European community. No rules would govern there at all. It would be just like, you know, an escape from New York style, unruled, ungoverned, temporary autonomous zone. Howe had a slightly more moderate vision, and this is what ended up making it into the first Thatcher budget, which was to create these things called enterprise zones. And so they were created all around Britain. It's the exact same concept that still now dominates ideas of urban regeneration in Britain under the conservative government. You create an area where the local council government is no longer the one who makes choices. You suspend things like planning regulations you lower taxes and you give big direct transfers from the central government to developers who are willing to come in. And you try to create in as much as possible an environment similar, and they were open about this, to a kind of a Hong Kong or even a Jebel Ali free zone in Dubai in the middle of London or in the middle of Liverpool. Most of them failed. They, it turns out that it's very hard, actually, to sort of roll back 
things like regulation and democracy and people tend to get angry. And if you give developers money, it usually just moves them from one place to another. And when the tax holidays end, they just leave again. So there was no real net bonus except for Canary Wharf, which, of course, if anyone is familiar with the skyline of London, know that it's now the the sort of second financial district down the Thames from the traditional central medieval city of London itself, but works very much along this zone or crack up capitalism model that I describe in the book, which is an area that exists under a different set of laws, predominance of private rights over public rights, and very much plugged into a global economy in ways that doesn't necessarily produce any kind of local benefits or redistribution. This did not happen without resistance, or it wasn't the only option on the table in the 1980s. The Greater London Council, which is, I think, to this day, one of the most extraordinary experiments in extremely progressive urban government under the socialist mayor, Ken Livingston, was doing all kinds of fascinating things that historians are only now writing about, empowering mothers and parents and women and newly arrived immigrants, combining culture and radical literature and publishing with local visions of politics. They had these socially useful technology workshops. They were promoting public transit over single car ownership. All kinds of stuff that was seen as like crackpot hippie stuff in the 1980s that is now what most average center-left mayors are are proposing. That was all very much flourishing at the time in Thatcher's London. There was a people's plan for the Docklands. And one of the ways that Thatcher made her vision reality is by just abolishing the Greater London Council altogether. So just nuking that city government so it no longer existed and there and was only reconstituted many, many years later under very different political circumstances. So I try to get it back in the book too. This isn't just a smooth palette for the dreams of libertarians, but there's friction all the way and at every point. I'm speaking with Quinn Slobodian, author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy, just out from Metropolitan Books. Now, let's talk some about the American experience here, particularly Murray Rothbard, the radical libertarian who uh, made common cause with the new left in the 60s, but then turned against it. And his pal Lou Rockwell, the uh, longtime head of the Von Mises Institute in Alabama. Von Mises in particular is very close to the neo-Confederate movement. There's a nostalgia for slavery. They have some really questionable racial politics. What about the relation between this idea of freedom and a nostalgia for slavery? That the freedom of the best rests upon the oppression of the many? So yeah, this indeed peculiar alliance between libertarians and the racist right in the United States comes out of a very particular historical moment. So if you have this idea that you want to get to a stateless society instead of having the the dream of sort of building a new state, then you can find your partners in strange places. And in the 1960s, as you suggested, he did have some sympathies with the new left, mostly because he saw their anti-authoritarian side and their anti-statist side, in other words, the resistance to American imperialist interventions overseas, the resistance to the idea of conscription as being signs of a kind of a brewing willingness to move to a disintegration of the existing political system. He was especially fond in the 1960s of Black nationalists who he understood as wanting to create breakaway secessionist polities within the territory of the United States, which he was all for. He thought that if the black population could govern itself somewhere, then it would produce a different kind of a dynamic. There would be less social disharmony. It would be a move away from welfareist redistribution. So he was a fan of Black Power and the Black Panthers for all the wrong reasons. He saw that it would be a chance for a kind of white solidaristic movement that could emerge alongside of it and that everyone could break up and find their own patches of territory in the former United States and learn to be more self-reliant and autonomous than they had been before. When the Black Power movement dissolved in some ways in the 1970s, when more importantly, some Black radicals began cooperating with white radicals on a class-based platform, he grew completely disenchanted and was just kind of a hustler in the think tank world for a while, helped start the Cato Institute, taught economics in Brooklyn and so on. Long time resident of the Upper West Side, which always struck me as funny. Yeah. Died in his dentist's office in the Upper West Side. That's a really good, like a New York way to die, I think. 
When the 90s came around, though, you had the crack up of the Soviet Union and it, what looked like a kind of a return to what he had hoped would happen in the 1960s, right? If the U.S. hadn't broken up into racially defined polities, well, that kind of looked like what was happening in the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. You were getting a breakup of these sort of large, expansive territorial, multi-ethnic, multiracial, multinational states into smaller ethnically de defined polities. And he was inspired, basically. He was like, this is great. How can we bring this energy here to the United States? And he wasn't the only one who was inspired. Uh, there was a group of deeply traditionalist, Christian, conservative, white American thinkers who were similarly inspired by what was described at the time as neo-nationalism. One of those neo-nationalist movements was the, the Lega Nord, um, you know, was recently the ruling power in the coalition in, in Italy is the Lega which began as a sort of somewhat secessionist movement in Lombardy in northern Italy, inspired by the Lega Nord, a, a group of what would be called neo-Confederates in the United States, created what was called the League of the South. Amazingly, had their manifesto published in the Washington Post. Um, it was just a full-on uh, demand for the creation of a white secessionist polity. I didn't know that you could get that thing, kind of thing published in the Washington Post. Rothbard hooks up with these people. They call themselves paleoconservatives because they're against the neoconservatives who are off fighting wars in the Middle East. And Rothbard and Rockwell, you mentioned, you know, who had created this Ludwig von Mises Institute as a kind of opposition to the Beltway think tanks of Cato Institute and Heritage Foundation, which they saw as like too much in bed with Washington, too much tied up to the to big government. And you needed to get closer to the South, you get closer to the people and be more comfortable in many cases with kind of revisionist histories of the Civil War, which, among other things, cast the North as the aggressor, the South as, as having been well within its rights, which uh, in the Rothbard sort of narrative meant that the South not only should not have been invaded, but should have been allowed to conduct its internal business any way it wanted, which, of course, brings with it a kind of apology for the institution of slavery. And that is sort of what it looked like. There are ways that the paleo-libertarian vision of private property extended in ways towards apologism for slavery. It certainly extended into a, an apologism for the dispossession of the indigenous people of North America, who were described by Rothbard as having been proto-communistic, not having, I guess, done the proper Lockean thing of mixing their labor with their soil, uh, therefore having no uh, claim on territory as property. Since then, we've had a couple of decades of this putrid cross-fertilization of two bodies of thought, right? One body of thought, which is based on an antagonism towards government, a belief in contractual communities, and the need to defend yourself against outsiders for economic reasons, for libertarian reasons, which has been, you know, fused again and again with people who believe that for reasons of racial purity and more cultural ethno-nationalist reasons. And we all remember, I think, the kind of the, the flurry of profiles of members of the alt-right from the 2016, 17, 18 period, where time and again, you found out that the background was like this so-called libertarian to alt-right pipeline. People had been sucked in by starting to read Ron Paul, then it was Rothbard, then it was Hans Hermann Hoppe, and then it was Richard Seymour and, and company. It's not a coincidence. Finally, um, I recall back in the 80s, back in my days as I was breaking away from literary studies, you would hear a lot about export processing zones. People like Gayatri Spivak talked about them a lot. And I thought at the time that overlooking the rest of the setup where most people lived and worked. And the, the zones you write about are important and interesting, but could they exist without the rest of uh, the arrangement? I mean, central banks, uh, subsidies from the National Institutes of Health, the U.S. military and the cops to protect them, and then counterparts of these institutions around the world. Are, are they in some sense cream skimmers or free riders? What is their relation to an effect on the broader political economy? Yeah, I mean, I think they absolutely are. I think the, the essence of these special economic zones from their creation, whether you look at the foreign trade zones and the sort of warehouses in the U.S. that Dare Orenstein writes about, or the export processing zones in places like Puerto Rico and Taiwan that Patrick Neveling writes about, or the logistics hubs that, you know, Dubai's DP world sets up all over the world that Lale Khalili writes about. They're not intended to be blueprints for the transformation of society as such, right? They, they are specialized spaces that exist and profit 
insofar as they take advantage of a particular kind of a niche, right? You're right that they rely on the hinterland doing something else, which then produces the output that they can, you know, act as the kind of broker for or the shipping point for, or that they can invest in, speculate on, or take the calls for. Philippines is filled with export processing zones, which are actually more like call centers. Part of what the zone is, is not so much a preview of an isolated, post-apocalyptic, inwardly turned future formed of self-reliant communities. It's more like fortified nodes in a network that, that still remains connected. So those export processing zones, which are in some ways quite politically benign forms of organizing the world economy, it's not like everyone who proposes one of these has been like reading Rothbard secretly in the evening. What I think is interesting about the libertarians of this strain and the anarcho-capitalists is they took a look at this sort of practical piece of uh, machinery in the world economy and they sort of asked, what if we took that and imported that back into politics? And so instead of just being an economic thing, it would become a political thing too. And would it still then rely on states that organize themselves differently for all kinds of inputs and as customers and clients? I think the assumption is yes, right? So it's part of the thing that is provocative and I think productive to think about with these people is they don't see the world sort of marching along one path of modernity or progress in which every state is going to end up looking like every other in the model of like modernization theory or Fordism. They assume diversity. And the assumption is like the global economy is filled with a mosaic of internally and externally homogeneous political spaces, many of which we can think of as zones. Um, It will continue to look like that for the foreseeable future. How do we find the one that we can extract the most profit from as best as we can? And while we're there, how can we produce a contractual arrangement by which all of the things that displease us about everyday life witness all of the belly aching of the residents of San Francisco uh, about the fact that there are people who are unlike them who live in their proximity? How do you cordon off yourself from that friction of everyday life while still plugging into all of the inequalities and um, unevenness of the world that can make you rich. That was Quinn Slobodian, author of Crack Up Capitalism, just out from Metropolitan Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this. Some of And Tomorrow the Stock Exchange Will Be the Human Race by the 1980s Marxist Britpop band McCarthy. Till next week, bye. So well